Man, well, that's what we have to look forward to, more of that. Uh, so don't bring the lights up in here. Uh, welcome. My name is Stan, one of the pastors on staff. We're going to be in Acts, and so if you want to open your Bibles to Acts 22, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some free paperbacks over there we'd love to hook you up with. Um, but really excited uh, to continue our study in the book of Acts. And we teach exegetically, uh, means we oftentimes just take a book of the Bible and teach it line for line, but today we're going to teach it chapter by chapter, because I'm going from Acts 22 through 26, so about five chapters, uh, but it's a singular story. It's Paul on trial, and uh, we're going to just take a slightly different approach because of the length. And so we are still going to unpack God's Word uh, but it's just going to be a little bit different this morning. It's going to be a little bit more zoomed out. Uh, Jeff Dodge is a mentor of mine, a pastor, friend from Iowa. Actually, he wrote a little devotional that I've been working through in Titus. And he was just talking about God's word being like a sword. And perhaps you've heard that. But just as we prepare our hearts today, Jeff's like, there's four different kind of swords in ways in which we can treat God's word. One is like a sword on a shelf. Is how we can treat God's word. It's like, it's great, it's just a little dusty, and we rarely take it down, and it certainly doesn't influence our life. Another way people use God's word is like an ornamental sword. It's like, ooh, it looks good, and you dress yourself up with it. But ornamental swords, you don't put a blade on those because, again, they're just for dress. They're for show, not for use. And so sometimes we use God's word like that. We were like, we don't want to have it prick us, and so it's just kind of dull. Another way is to use God's word to just swing and point it at other people. It's like, oh, I love using the Bible to cut people down, like deal with that. And, and so uh, we can do that and use it, uh, especially against those who disagree with us. Or another way, the way in which God intended is that his word would be like a sword skillfully used in his hand to expose and shape me first and foremost. And as I was studying this, I just want you guys to realize a level of conviction that God's been bringing on my heart, and I just want that for you, that, that God's word today, that we want to be listening to the sermon like, mm, I know who needs to hear this, <laughs> but be like you, like that you would be the one that would that hear God's word. And so as we unpack these five chapters, I just want to pray for us as we get started that God would do a work in us first and foremost. And so let's pray together, please. God, we do. Um, just want to open our hearts and ask that your word would work in us. And, and Lord, that it, first and foremost, you would do a good work in us, sanctify us um, by your word. And so we are here to meet with you. God, would you please meet with us in this way? Would you bring about a level of conviction that you would help us understand how these truths perhaps don't match up with our life and, and that you would do work? Our desires to be more like you, Jesus. And so we pray that as we study your word, that you would do that this morning. And just pray that in our Savior's name. Amen. So Paul is going to make five different speeches, giving a defense, because he's on trial, to five different crowds. In Acts 22, as you're looking, we see that he defends himself, gives a defense in front of an angry Jewish mob. Matt covered most of that last week, Acts 22. He goes from the mob to the council, the Sanhedrin of Jews and Pharisees, and gives a defense there. From there, he goes on to Felix, who's kind of ruling over Judea. Felix to Festus, and Festus to Agrippa. Five different crowds. Again, Paul giving a defense. And so I want to recap briefly Acts chapter 22. 
and was able to teach that prior, and we see that Paul is at the hands of an angry Jewish mob. They thought he desecrated the temple, did some things wrong. He's getting ushered out of there and being attacked by these Jewish people, and the Romans have to carry him out of there. And he speaks to the Roman uh, commander in Greek, and the Roman commander hears Paul like lay down some Greek. Paul's like, hey, in Greek, he says, you mind if I address the crowd? Which would have been crazy because most of the Jews at that time just simply spoke Aramaic. Uh, and so the, the guard's like, sure, you can talk to the crowd. Paul gets up, and then Paul throws down uh, some original Hebrew on them. Again, the Jews normally spoke Aramaic, and so to hear Hebrew, Hebrew was the language of scholars. It was the language of Scripture. And so Paul throwing down some Hebrew, it's like, well, who is this guy, right? Uh, and Paul proceeds to just share in Acts 22 his testimony with them, what God has done in his life, uh, the powerful testimony uh, that, that God had given him in his conversion, Acts 9. You can go back and read that if you'd like. And then he just casually at the end said, and God is calling me to share this good news with those who are far away, to the Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people, into which the crowd of Jewish people at the, the sound of this they just lose their ever-living minds. So like, what? <laughs> like the Gentiles, and they start flinging dust in the air and taking off their cloaks. It's just like a riot. You imagine the, the commander's confusion where it's like we're having this little Greek conversation and then he's speaking in some language I don't understand and something gets said where people lose their minds. And I imagine he's like, I don't get paid enough for this. Like what is going on? Like, And so he just takes Paul, and and Acts 22 kind of ends with where they're getting ready to stretch Paul out and scourge him, flog him, probably with the cat of nine tails where pieces of glass and bone would have been tied to it and just take it, whip it, and then it sticks and you rip it up. A lot of people died under such a punishment. And so they're bringing Paul to do that, and Paul just simply asks a question as he's being stretched out for the flogging. He asks, is it lawful for you to flog uh, a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. In other words, like he just throws down this trump card uh, with them because they did not know that this guy was a Roman citizen. And had they known that, because Roman citizen, you're innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. You can beat these other people. I get that, Rome. But a Roman citizen, that is not okay. And in fact, if they would have carried that out, they themselves would have been subject to harsh uh, reprimand that they themselves could have been flogged and put to death for such a thing. And so upon hearing that, the commander's like, uh, new plan. <laughs> Let's not beat it out of him, which who knows what that would have accomplished anyways. Uh, we should probably have a little bit of a trial. And so we pick it up in 23, where Paul is now on trial before this council made up of, of religious people. It's, it's Sanhedrin. It's, you have Pharisees, and you have Sadducees, and Paul starts in in chapter 23, he's like, listen, I have a clear conscience. I have not done anything wrong, and the high priest who's there uh, has Paul struck in the mouth. Paul's response is like, oh, you strike me in the mouth? God's going to strike you in the mouth, (laughs) and they have this little exchange, and somebody's like, Paul, that's uh, the high priest, and he's like, oh, Scripture says you shouldn't speak against God's anointed and leadership. And so Paul devises a new plan in Acts 23. He's not going to go rounds with them. He looks and he sees there's Pharisees and Sadducees. Now the Pharisees, they believed in the supernatural, angels, spirits. They believed in the resurrection. But the Sadducees, they denied it all. Paul's brilliant plan is like, instead of having them team up and fight against me, I'm just going to have them fight against themselves. 
and just kind of burst out. He, it says he cried out after this. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And boom goes the dynamite. That was just it. The, the, the Pharisees are like, well, then there, there's nothing wrong with this guy. And the Sadducees, they start getting mad. And so they're fighting. Paul is in the middle of this thing. And now the Romans have to come in again and get Paul out because they are afraid he is going to be torn to pieces. Successfully, Paul diverts the attention and gets them going. And then they take him back to the barracks in 23, verse 11. It says this, that the Lord stood by him saying, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God gives him this promise like, we're not done. We're going somewhere with this, all the way to the top. We're going to Rome, and you're going to testify in Rome. Well, the chapter ends with 40 Jewish people being so mad and angry with Paul, they make a vow that they will not eat or drink anything until they have killed Paul. Now, some of you are like, wow, like, I can't miss a meal and, and not drink anything. I mean, they are mad. They're saying, until we, we will not be satisfied, our hunger or our thirst, until we have his blood. And what they do in order to do this, because again, Paul's in barracks, he's, he's guarded, he's a Roman citizen. They ask for him to be transferred, and then their plot is that they would kill him in route, and they would ambush him, these guys, and, and kill him. Well, as they're devising this plan, they never check the room, and coincidentally, with the capital G, God, Paul's nephew is there hearing them make these plans. And Paul, uh, so the nephew goes to Uncle Paul. is like, hey, heard these guys making this vow that they were going to take this. So Paul's like, you should tell the commander. Commander hears about it, sneaks Paul out in the middle of the night, escorted by 200 foot soldiers and 70 horsemen from Rome. And I can only imagine there's like a slight smirk on his face when he went from potentially being flogged to death to now God has provided this entourage for this guy and he's like traveling out of the city and again his hope is in the Lord but you got to imagine there's a, a slight level of comfort from all these armed people walking with you and they take him to Caesarea I one of the questions and this is just a side note I there's a justice bone in my body and I just want to know what happened to these guys like, I want to know, did they die? Like, the men that took the vow, did they die? Did they cave? What happened? I can't wait to get that question answered someday. But we don't know what happened to him. But we know what happened to Paul is he is now before Felix in Caesarea. And Felix would have been ruling over, like, this area of Judea. So he goes from, from the, the town of Jerusalem being on trial there, and they, like, send him up the chain a little bit. And so now he's before Felix. And Felix calls him and is like, let's have a trial. And so the high priest, Ananias, and some of the elders travel 60 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea with their attorney to Paul's trial. They hire like an attorney. Uh, and, and so the attorney gets up and he just starts like kissing up to Felix, saying how great he is. And then he brings three accusations. One, Paul's a troublemaker and he stirs up trouble, not just in Jerusalem, but he says... The whole world. Two, he's a ringleader of this sect of Nazarenes, and he tried to desecrate our, our temple. 
But those are the accusations. And imagine like the attorney gets back and they're like high five. It's like, that's why we pay you the big bucks. Paul doesn't get an attorney, right? He just represents himself. He gets up, he's like, um, no, like I, I haven't desecrated the temple. That didn't happen. I do follow Jesus and I do believe in the resurrection of the dead. But what's that? I mean, it's, what's the trial here? Like what's the, what's the, what are we talking about? And so Felix hears this. And he's in a jam because in, in, in chapter 24, verse 27, he wants to do the Jews a favor. He wants to be on their good side. But now he has a Roman citizen who just gave a defense, and he's like, there's, there's nothing here. So I can't condemn him because that's not going to go well. And I want to do these guys a favor, so I, I can't really release him. And so he's caught in this crossfire. So, so Felix is approached. He's like, I'll just... I'll just do nothing. I'll just do nothing. I'm just going to stall. And so he stalls and says, Paul, listen, when Lysias, the commander, comes down from Jerusalem, then we'll figure out this case. Well, Lysias doesn't come for two years. In fact, he never comes in Felix's reign. It's two years later. Felix is out and Festus is in. And now we're to the fourth person he gives a defense for in chapter 25. And this is Paul before Festus. Festus, I imagine he like inherits the former rulers kind of thing. He's like, what do we got going on here? Cleaning house. And he's like, okay, we got this prisoner, Paul. Okay, let's have his trial and let's get this off the books. And so he says, get the Jews from Jerusalem. They come back. But in the course of two years, they have not cooled down a bit, nor have they like gotten their story together. In fact, they just start hurling even more unsubstantiated accusations against Paul. Again, it reminds me of Jesus on trial where there's just so much confusion. Nobody agrees on anything. And, and Paul responds, no, I haven't wronged the law. I haven't desecrated the temple. And I haven't done anything against Caesar. This is all nothing. And Festus, he wants this out of his hands. He's like, well, then go back to Jerusalem and go stand your trial there where all this happened and let that sort it out. Paul's like, no, there is no justice in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where they kill people. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm a Roman citizen. I want to be tried as a Roman. And so I appeal to Rome. Let Caesar decide my case, but not these guys. Festus is like, fine, to Rome you appeal, to Rome you shall go. And then I imagine there's this thinking like, ah, Darn moment, because now he's sending a guy who there's no case. Nobody's made a case in this time, and now he's going to send him to Caesar, the emperor, who's got other things to do than rather like have this, like nothing of a trial before him with a Roman citizen. This is going to reflect really poorly on Festus. In fact, I imagine it's these kind of things that you lose your job over with Caesar. He doesn't have time for this. And so Festus is uh, like, I need to write something that it's going to accompany Paul. He goes, I know. King Agrippa is in town. Let's rope him into this madness, and let's let King Agrippa weigh into this so I don't look like a buffoon before the emperor. So in chapter 26, now we see that Paul is before Agrippa and, and, and Bernice. And here again, Paul recounts his testimony. He tells them this these people, he's saying, listen, I grew up uber-religious, Pharisees of Pharisees, zealous, persecuted the church, but 
Jesus, who is alive, met me on the road to Damascus. He changed my heart, and he can change your heart. And he preaches, and he's calling me to preach this good news to non-Jews. At this point, Festus just interrupts him. Festus is done. He's heard it. He's like, all you're learning, you're crazy. His words are like, you are out of your mind. I think he says it twice. You're out of your mind. Paul uh, denies that accusations, but instead of trying to win Festus, he just locks in on Agrippa, and he's like, Agrippa, and he starts addressing him directly. He's like, you believe in the prophets, don't you? And he attempts to bring the king to faith in Jesus. This is astounding for a couple reasons. One, because Paul, his primary concern is not his own chains. His primary concern is this king's salvation. His primary concern is making God known. He's not as concerned about getting out of his chains as he is about making God known. That's top priority. And we see that in his bold declaration of making Jesus known. And two, it's astounding because Paul believes that God can save a wretch like King Agrippa. Study it out. See who Bernice is. Bernice is actually King Agrippa's sister that he most certainly was having incestuous relationships with. Not good. Like this guy is, is, is not a great individual. And, uh, and, but yet, Paul is, is, is sharing uh, boldly with him. Uh, and King Agrippa responds to Paul in verse 28 like this. In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether long or short, I want you to know Jesus. Like, that's what I want. I, I want you to know Jesus. Five chapters of Paul standing trial before the Jews. These are strong, powerful people. The Jews had a couple thousand years worth of religious history. They were God's people. who God had given them this land. How dare you stand in opposition to God's people, right? And then moreover, the Romans, world power, they controlled three million square miles of territory, of which they shed a lot of blood to capture these kingdoms. And there would be no hesitation to shed a little bit more blood to keep the peace. That's who Paul is standing before. And it's together the Jews and the Romans who recently had crucified the Messiah. Paul is standing before them, and things would look pretty bleak. I was typing this out and looking at that. I'm like, man. But the phrase that came out was just like, but God. But God enters the scene. God had other plans. And so while it might look bleak in humanly standpoint, but God. This is God who spoke creation into existence, who holds it in the palm of his hands. It's like, who are you again? Rome? Like, the future would look bleak, but God appeared to Paul and said, he, these are the plans I have for you. And I love being able to, to do five chapters like this and kind of do a flyover. And I just want to side note, we're getting ready to start a new year. And for, for some, perhaps your scripture reading is, is a few verses I understand that. I would invite you, if you haven't read Scripture in its entirety, or if you have, perhaps to jump on a Bible reading plan this next year that will allow you to take larger chunks of Scripture to understand perhaps the broader context of the, the narrative that's taking place there. 
We're going to have those available starting next week, some, some Bible reading plans. You can choose your own. But the idea would be to, to get in Scripture because we never watch a movie, right? Just going three-quarters way through the movie, watching it for two or three minutes. You're like, that was, that was good, and then shut it off, right? We know how to watch a movie from start to finish. We know how to watch whole uh, series on Netflix from start to finish. And I would just invite you, I think there's some wisdom in that, not binging Netflix uh, uncontrollably, but there's some, you should start a series at the beginning and kind of watch, and I would just invite us to read scripture and read chunks of it at a time, and we're going to present those things uh, moving forward. But let's look back on these five chapters and say, okay, that's the narrative, that's the story that's taking place there. How does that apply to us? Like, what principles are there, and how could that apply to us? If you're taking notes, here's one of the application points, I think. Paul's hope was not in this life. It was in the next life. Paul's hope was not in this life. It was in the next life. See this over and over. When he was giving his defense, he's consumed with the truth of the resurrection. In fact, nearly every defense he gives it manifests itself, the hope of the resurrection. It'll be on the screen. In, in 23, when he's talking to them, he says, I am on trial for this, my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 24, the next crowd. I'm on this, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, and they shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I, I have a hope in the resurrection. That's why I'm, I'm standing trial. And he'd say in 26, I am now standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. As for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you uh, people that God does raise the dead? Paul's saying the, the problem... The, is that I have this hope in the resurrection. That's what he's saying. My hope is in there is life after life. That's the sticking point for them. And Paul knows that there is life after life because this Jesus, whom was crucified and laid in a tomb, appeared to him sometime later on the road to Damascus calling him by name. And he's like, I know that there is life after life because Jesus is very much alive, did a miracle in my life, and he's continuing to speak to me and lead me. And so Paul knows that there is life after life. This is personal testimony. That Jesus didn't stay dead, so therefore neither will we. And so his hope is not in this life, but in the, in the next. He has this understanding. An illustration I would use, this is going to fall short, but work with me a little bit. You've flown, anybody flown? A few people travel? Some of you? Okay, thank you. Okay. When you get to an airport, there's two types of people in the security line. Those that have flown before and those who are in for a rude awakening. And if you've traveled, you know what I'm talking about. Is because if you've not flown post 9-11, there are some things that you can't do, right? You cannot take your pocket knives with you or your keychain mace with you, uh, your full bottles of shampoo, uh, not going to happen, right? Uh, even just liquid. You can't buy your Starbucks, your $9 latte, and you see these people like in line, it's like, you have no idea 
what is about to come. Is they're going to make you either drink that thing and pee your pants, or you're going to have to just throw it away. I don't know if you've been there, but it's just a rude awakening when you get to TSA and you're like, oh man, uh, they're serious about this. And when you when you see people that have not understood that, uh, you feel for them a little bit. But having been through that one time, it only takes one time of having them like whip you into shape. I remember the next time it's like belts off shoes there. I'm like, I'm walking in to the, the, the baggage check half naked, right? You're like, I know how this goes. I am prepared. And there's no liquids on me, in me. Like, let's work through this. Uh, because if, if you've been there, you know, like, it would be foolish. It would be foolish to come in with your tray full of Starbucks and, and uh, pocket knives and all those things. Like, knowing what is waiting for you, that you can't take it on the other side of that, you change how you act and how you present yourself. Paul understands that it's not about this life, but there's life after life, and it informs how you use this one. Paul knows that hearses don't go pulling U-Hauls. You can't take it with you. So amassing all this wealth and titles and popularity status you can't take it with you when you die. Now, I would say this, but Paul does understand what we do here and now absolutely matters in the sense of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus said that in Matthew 20. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And so storing up treasures in heaven. So Paul lives with this hope, not in this life, but what is to come in the next and that informs how he interacts. And it is so evident that Paul's hope is in the next life. That it is even evident to those who would oppose him and who would disagree. In fact, we see that in, in Festus in Acts 25, verse 18 and 19. They see this in Paul so clearly. I want to read it. It says, when the accuser stood up, and he's telling King Agrippa, like recapping what the problem is. And Festus says, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had a certain point of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. And I was at a loss of how to investigate these questions. He's saying, I thought there was going to be something like big at the reality, what this whole thing is about, the sticking point is they think Jesus is dead, and Paul asserts that he's alive. The hope in the resurrection ought to be the sticking point for between believers and those that do not believe. But instead, it's, it's interesting that people are like, well, what's the church, or what's the Bible say about same-sex attraction, or gender roles, or, or the creation account? And part of me is like, Really? Like, really, that's the sticking point. Not the fact that we believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, lives eternally, and is coming back. You're going to grant me that? And we're going to get caught up over, like, on this? And I'm not saying it's not worth a discussion, but, but the resurrection, that is what an unbelieving world should find unbelievable, is, is our, our hope that there is life essential, and Paul would tell the Corinthians as to why that truth in our Christian faith is of utmost importance. 
The resurrection is of utmost importance because he'd tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He'd say, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He would go on to tell him in verse 32, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought the beast in Ephesus, if I did all these things? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The question is, that I was wrestling and studied, that, that God's working in my heart is, how does the resurrection, life after life, how does that affect my daily life? Because it absolutely, throughout these five chapters, was the thing that, that drove Paul to respond in such a way. We saw that over and over with his defense. He's like, it's the resurrection that I'm doing this. It's because of the resurrection. I'm not looking to get out of these chains, but I'm looking to convert you. It's the resurrection that is driving his life Asking myself the question, if the resurrection weren't true, there's not life after life, how would that affect my daily life? And I was convicted because in the big things, yeah. I think about the resurrection when I think, okay, salvation, yeah, I want to think eternally about that. Big decisions, I want to weigh them in, in light of doesn't matter for the resurrection. But I'm, if I'm being honest, the thing that God's working in my heart, it's like, it's the little things that you're not putting in perspective in light of the resurrection. It's the little things that should probably bounce right off of you that are just driving you because you're failing to think eternally. I think it was Nathan or Christina, one of our young staffers that were bringing this conviction to me is wanted to change somebody's mind. I'm like, if I could just put this thought in there, and they're like, think eternally. More or less is the conversation we were saying. It's not your job to change people's hearts and minds. You have an obligation to say what is true and to speak clearly, but God changes hearts. God changes minds. And one day they will stand before him. So can you give that to God? Because that's kind of his job, not yours. Think eternally. Do you see how just thinking eternally begins to inform some of those things? When you think eternally, saying, okay, TSA, you got that illustration, like that we are not owners of anything. So, I mean, let me, I know taxes are due, like property taxes. Okay, you need to pay those, right? Don't be like, my pastor said we're not owners of anything. And so, <laughs> tough. No, you should pay those. But, but we think eternally, and we understand that we are just mere stewards. That all these things that we own, we're just stewarding, that God has entrusted with us here and now, and we can't take them with us, and they're not bad or good, but they're to be leveraged for kingdom good. And so we're stewards. Do you see how thinking eternally begins to inform interactions, begins to inform stewardship? Because of the resurrection, it puts this eternal perspective. And, and perhaps you're like, man, I, I just, but I want others to approve of me. 
question I'm having to ask is, am I willing to exchange the earthly approval of man for what might be at odds with the obedience to the heavenly will of God? Because at the end, when we get through this and we stand in eternity, it won't be those people. They're like, well done. But who we want to hear well done, good and faithful servant from, is our heavenly Father. That is who we're aiming to please. That is who we will stand before one day. And it's Paul's understanding of that. He's like, say what you want, do what you want. Agrippa, Festus, Felix, mob. It's, it's my hope in the resurrection that drives all that I do. What implications should life after life have on our priorities? And I can't answer that for you, but are there ways in which there's corners of your life that are not permeated by a hope of eternity, that don't have an eternal perspective? Maybe it's your calendar or your, your giving, your attitude. Are there ways that, that you're failing to just put that in the context of the sovereignty of God and that there's hope life after life in the ridiculousness that it would be to try and manage things on this side of the TSA and this side of like leveraging all your income to, to buy the, the Starbucks and to do the things. You understand the illustration, again, is going to break down at some point, but, but to live in light of eternity that's where wisdom is headed, and that's what is driving Paul. And he clung to it in every trial, in every argument. And in fact, he's saying to the Corinthians, he would say, no, there is life after life, which is why I use this life to die every day. I take up my cross, and I follow him, always having a hope in the resurrection. I know my circumstances may be bleak, and it may be challenged, but my hope is in what is to come. That is what drives Paul. And when you live like that, there ought to be a level of, of hopefulness. When I live like that, there ought to be a level of perspective that comes about. Failure to do that, you'll begin to identify the lack of eternal perspective as the young staff was doing to me. It's going to come out in negativity, bitterness, self-pity, frustration. Those are great indicators. We do not see that in the life of Paul because he's so heavenly-minded but the earthly-minded individual is going to be bummed and is going to be put out by those things and not leave room for, for God to act and to move. But no, the, we understand the glory that awaits us and we can have an eternal perspective. And so we see that. That's one of the application points. How that applies directly to you just would want to invite the Holy Spirit to work and to move. The next thing, because of that, we see Paul preach Christ boldly. He preaches boldly. In light of eternity, he's using this life and all that he has, and he's preaching boldly. And we've already seen that, that boldness with King Agrippa, but I want to go back to, to Felix. Felix, this guy was no gem either. Felix was a pretty rough dude. He was a slave at one time who gained his freedom and gained a position of power. And he used that power for self-gain. In fact, in Acts 24, we see this, that, that he was holding Paul uh, in hopes, uh, verse 26 there, that he would get some money from Paul. And that is why he's doing He's wanting self-gain. And with that, he's with his wife, Drusilla. You see that in, in verse 24. Again, just painting the picture of Felix. He's not the greatest guy. Drusilla isn't his first wife. 
fact, is his second or third. And Drusilla, the only problem for him to, to marry her was that she was already married to the king of Syria. Her daddy was Herod. Herod was the one that killed James and ultimately God struck dead and was eaten by worms. So she comes from a fun family lineage, right? And then, and then she, you know, yokes up with Felix who's wanting to take bribes and, and leverage these things. And so together they make quite the pair of broken individuals. And what does Paul do? They brought him, they sent for Paul, and they, they hear him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul, he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control, and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'm going to summon you. He preaches so boldly, making Christ known. Not just, just Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, but he, it speaks to the level of righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Those should be on your hearts. And it's to the point where Felix is like, I can't take it. He can't take the judgment that, that God is bringing upon him, the judgment that was meant to lead him to repent and to trust Jesus, but he does that, and he says, nope, i got to push this off, and so he pushes Paul away. But he brings him back every now and again just so perhaps Paul would offer a bribe. Paul preaches Christ in the fullness of the gospel fearlessly, understanding that this person can take his life or release it. To which Paul's concern is neither, and he's like, my concern is that you would come to know Jesus. We get that in line, and the rest will follow suit. And so he boldly preaches Christ, not only to Felix and Drusilla, but to Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, the Jewish mob. It didn't matter. I would ask you, church, like Paul, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? And that apart from him, there isn't hope. There isn't genuine joy that the world will leave you empty and broken. Do you hold to those truths? And that those that are apart from Christ are hurting, confused, and broken, lost, and, and not only in this life, but they will spend eternity apart from them. Those are basic biblical beliefs that we hold as believers, that Jesus Christ is the only way. And so my question is, when is the last time, then, that you boldly proclaim Jesus? It's like, well, just like you, Pastor, that sword number three, you just want to cut us all down with it. No, I'm just, I just want to merely ask the question because as I'm studying this, I'm like, man, this hurts a little bit. Like, if I believe those things, like Paul, how is that manifesting itself in my life? Because it ought to be. It ought to be coming out. And again, some of you listening, you're like, oh, real clever sermon telling us to think about eternity and share the gospel. To which the conviction I feel is like, well, once we apply that and we have that figured out, then we can go on to something else. But for right now, can we just simmer in that as we're getting ready to be around perhaps lost family and friends for the holidays? We work with people. There is a hopelessness that exists right now. Or there's hope being misplaced in, in presidencies, being misplaced in economies, and hope that is being trying to be found in, in something other than Jesus Christ. Are you proclaiming Jesus? What would that look like? If we believe what we believe, how does that come out? And if I'm honest, the, the, the harder part for me I'm not saying I would want the opportunity like to stand before a king that could just behead you or something. But to me, 
the thought of standing before that individual is sometimes easier than, than the thought of standing before some family. I'm like, give me the king with a sword rather than some family members I know. Because family, I'm going to have to keep seeing them. And it can be awkward. And just that, I was like, give me death. <laughs> and I'm just being honest. And, and here's the thing is I'm valuing in that moment temporary comfort at the, and valuing it so much at a potential eternal cost. We have to believe that this is of the utmost importance. We agree that apart from an individual surrendering their life to Jesus and offering Jesus to take their sin, not just their sin, but their whole life, that there is no hope of eternity spent with him. And so to not share is to not care. And so it's of utmost importance. And I would also say that, that time is of the essence. These family members, perhaps that we get lackadaisical with, we're like, well, the opportunity didn't present itself. How many more opportunities do we have? I don't know about your family, our family. They're just like children everywhere uh, when I go home for the holidays and, and, and try and have intentional conversation. That's like, it just doesn't happen. The thought of getting a half hour of intentional conversation with a, with a singular family member would be a half hour more than we've typically gotten, my wife and I, with these family members. I don't know about your situation, but think like good conversation with a family member as you go back. How, what length of time would you give that? And again, knowing that family structures change, cousins that I used to see 10 years ago and hang out with now the family nucleuses have changed, and it's like, you don't even see them. It's just, so how much time, this is a thought exercise, that I said, how much time do we genuinely have left with those family members? In terms of hours of conversation, let's say, let's say, great, your house is calm, and there ain't kids running around everywhere, and you can have an hour-long intentional conversation with that family member. And you can do that a couple times a year. What do you have, 40 years left with them, 80 hours worth of conversation? When you start to break it down like that, squandering this next season, this next hour, it just, it starts to grip you. And it's not only, I got 80 hours left with this person, I might have 120 with this. This, this might be one of four conversations I'll have left with this person before they pass away. I mean, we just don't know that. And I'm, I'm telling you the thing that keeps me from having eternal conversations is that temporary comfort. And God is working in my heart, being like, really? Are we gonna, we gonna let that be the barrier from them getting to hear? And that is cutting my heart deep. And I would just ask, what might God ask of you? And, and hear me say, it's not like you gotta start writing your sermon today for when you go back home and like fashion yourself a pulpit and be like, everybody sit down, listen. Maybe, maybe that's what God would want. Maybe it's as simple as this, is proclaiming the gospel might just look at seeking out that person who is hurting and actually just being present with them and listening, showing genuine concern and care for them. Maybe that's how God would want you to bring the gospel to bear in their life. Perhaps it's leading out in, in forgiveness towards someone. Perhaps it's just encouraging a niece and nephew, just being intentional and, and your specific encouragement of them might just kind of win you a voice that you would be able to speak into other areas of their life. Again, I don't know what God would have. And maybe you're like, well, I'm not really good with words. Well, write it out. Perhaps God would want you to just give them a handwritten note. 
Maybe God would be asking you to lead out and read the Christmas story at your family, pointing people that the greatest gift is truly Jesus. And as I was studying, I, I would just say this one. I really feel like God's got this specifically for somebody in Anthem, so you're all going to hear it. But for one of you, I, I think this might be the case, that the Holy Spirit would prompt you to give somebody forgiveness, that you would, you would seek to forgive them in the same way God has forgiven you. They're not asking for it. Perhaps they don't deserve it. I get it. Neither did we. In the same way that Christ sought us out and forgave us, perhaps God would want to use you to issue forgiveness and, and, and just love somebody in that way, in the, that level of forgiveness that comes from you. Unmerited, unsolicited, undeserved would be such a tangible picture of the gospel. But that, that, that would be the thing that God would want to have them experience to soften their heart, to trust the truth of the gospel. What a beautiful picture and display, but yet there's a withholding of forgiveness. And I would just say, man, we take communion saying, Jesus, thank you for giving us. But are we going to withhold forgiveness from others just because they didn't ask, because they didn't deserve it? What undermines the gospel more than that? And so perhaps God would want you to lead out in a real tangible display of forgiveness and reconcile with them. No buts, just straight up gospel as God has done for you that you would do for them. Paul lives with the hope that there is life after life and he wants people to know that, which is why he boldly proclaims the gospel. He's going to leverage this life, dying to himself. And I'm just, man, this... While it might be not new and revolutionary, there is plenty in here that God is working in my heart that I want to live out and embody. And I'm thankful for the community, the people in the Connection Group, and hold me accountable to, to wanting to prayerfully enact this because these truths ought to drive our life. Truths that home is heaven, that Jesus is the only way, and therefore, we should live in light of that. And so I'm going to invite the band up. But as we celebrate communion, certainly we remember the body of Jesus broken, his blood shed for us so that we could be forgiven. But as you take communion, I want you to remember that it didn't stop there, that he resurrected. He resurrected, and one day he is coming back for his bride. And so as you take communion, I would just ask you prayerfully, in light of the truths that we're celebrating, what might God have for you? I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, do just thank you so much. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that you poured out to us. Lord, thank you so much that you would not only free us from our sin, but that you would prepare a place for us in heaven and that you would give us the opportunity to store up treasures there by what we do here. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would first and foremost work in our hearts, help us embrace these truths to truly know them, ingest them, and then live in accordance. Just pray for the gospel conversations, the witness that this congregation is going to have. Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in that. And it would truly be to our joy to be used in this way. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to, to speak conviction, to work in us. Lord, would you take the sword to our heart first and foremost and do your work there. 
And so we just pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you can uh, take communion and then invite you to stand and worship with the team.